like, let's just like start reading the Bible together. I think he'll bless it. I think he'll use it to his good purposes and for your good as well. Uh, so Ruth chapter 2. So we are a few weeks now, or not even a few weeks, we're like five weeks now uh, into our effort to kind of dig into uh, the book of Ruth together. Ruth is a short little story happening during the time period of the judges. Uh, and, and, and so if you're not familiar with the Old Testament very much, uh, if maybe you're new to the church, new to the Bible, uh, it, uh, the judges is a kind of a calamitous time uh, in Israel's history. Shortly after they entered into the promised land, which you think would be this really nice, sweet, pleasant time, uh, but that's not the case at all. Uh, It's the middle of a a few hundred years of national-level chaos, national-level calamity, uh, sin, and all the consequences that come with it. The writer of Ruth uh, zooms uh, their focus in, while Judges tells the story on the national level, the writer of Ruth zooms their focus in on one man's family living in the tiny little town of Bethlehem, a man named Elimelech. All right. uh, this national level calamity has brought famine on the land, and so um, the weight of the full story uh, is kind of bearing down on our tiny little story, uh, but the writer of Ruth kind of zeroes their focus in to tell how this national level calamity is affecting this one family. All right? And so Elimelech packs up his family, and he sojourns, we're told, to the land of Moab, the neighboring land of Moab, in order to find food for his family. And if you frame it only in that context— of a man trying to provide, well then Elimelech sounds like a, like a rock star, right? Like who doesn't want to celebrate the guy who does what he can do to try to provide for his family? That, that guy ought to be applauded. The problem though is we know what Moab is and who Moab is. It's not a step up. It's not a positive move. Uh, Elimelech takes his family to a more sinful place during a time period where God's people are being called to repentance. That's the opposite direction where God's calling him to go. And the picture that's painted for us is that Elimelech seemingly knows that this is the opposite of what God is calling his covenant people to. This isn't some desperate attempt to eat. This is running away in a spiritual sense. So rather than repenting and trusting in God alone, Elimelech chases after fruitfulness on his very own terms. And, well, God won't let him have it. God won't let him have that fruitfulness. His efforts don't play out like we hope. Um, God seems to withhold that fruitfulness from him. We fast forward in the story. Elimelech eventually dies, leaving behind a widow named Naomi. All right, he's got two sons. They both marry Moabite girls. All right, fast forward again. Another 10 years go by. Neither of these girls have had children. And so kind of fruitfulness has been withheld yet again. And now Elimelech's sons die as well. And so now we're left with three widows, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And it's at this point that Naomi decides, oh, it's time to go back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I I can't stay here anymore in Moab. It's time for me to go back home. So she picks up. She goes back home. Uh, Orpah stays behind. Ruth travels with her. They're going to have a better life. They've got to try something different. And the bulk of chapter 1 is dedicated The bulk of chapter 1 is dedicated to kind of this interaction. Naomi's all depressed and she believes that God is actively working against her to prevent anything in her life from ever being good ever again. She is, she's depressed really. Ruth takes the initiative to go out and 
glean in the barley fields, we're told. They finally make it back to Bethlehem. Ruth has this kind of initiative, you know, industrious moment. She says, hey, hey let, me, let me go glean for us. Let me go and provide. And gleaning was the practice of leaving the edges of a field unharvested so that the poor could come and, and collect food, right? And so we, we've talked about that here before. And so last week, we, we watched Ruth jump all over that opportunity. She jumped all over that opportunity. And it was this moment where she wasn't going to sit around and do nothing. She was going to go do what's right, right? And then last week we were introduced to the third main character of the story, Boaz. <laughs> you just kind of puff your chest up, Boaz. It, it sounds like a good name. The, the love interest, we could call him. Boaz is a relative of Naomi's, and she happens to, he happens to own the barley field that Ruth happens to, want to be wanting to work in. So some, some call that a happy coincidence. The Bible, though, calls it the sovereign hand of the Lord bringing about his desired ends. Those are, those are not in conflict with each other. God's in charge. Right? And so we left things off last week without being really 100% sure uh, what exactly Ruth was doing. If you remember, we had this little small controversy that wasn't actually a controversy over what exactly the end of verse 7 means. Uh, and we, we, you know, there's this idiom in the phrase, this kind of slang innuendo term that we're not 100% sure what it means. Uh, but our options were either that Ruth was working her tail off out in the field, working diligently, or she was patiently waiting for permission to go work her tail off out in the field. Right? That's the decision we were left with. Right? Uh, but either way, when, whichever one of those it was, uh, we were supposed to be super impressed with Ruth. That was the point. Character and resolve. Uh, work ethic and honoring. I'm uh, super excited that God is sovereignly bringing all the pieces together for this wonderful story. So what is next in our nice little biblical rom-com? What, what's the next step? Well, it's time for our two lovebirds to meet. Isn't that the best part of the story? In modern rom-coms, the two mains have to meet cute, we're told, right? And you know how the story goes. You've seen the movie before. Uh, if they're not meeting cute, it's not a good rom-com. They have to bump into each other in a laughable slapstick kind of way, all right? And then they've got to, like, have some low-level flirting mixed in there. They can't be too committed, though, because they're both attached in other places. All right? There's got to be some low-level flirting in there. And then they've got to separate for a time, also that in the next scene, they can awkwardly bump into each other again. Is that how a modern rom-com works? You've seen this movie. I know you've seen this movie. A plus B equals meet cute C. It's always how it goes. All right. So here's the problem, though. If you remember the options from verse 7, Ruth has either been waiting around with the hopes of hitting the go button to go to work, or she's been working her tail off out in the field, and she's probably a little sweaty about it. Which of those options is cute? Let's look how it actually plays out. Verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Let's call a time out there. All right, so... Whether Ruth was working or waiting patiently doesn't matter anymore. We fast-forwarded in the story, and now Ruth and Boaz are talking directly to each other. All right, that's, they have now met. They're interacting, right? But notice that Boaz calls her my daughter, which, let's be honest, not the best pickup line. All right? So what's that about? Well, it's a pretty 
solid clue that there's a sizable age gap between Boaz and Ruth. Pretty sizable age gap. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilt trying to game out exactly how Boaz is related to Elimelech. I mean, is he a cousin? Is he like the second son of an estranged brother? We don't know. We don't know. Right? Uh, but we do have reason to believe that Boaz is closer to Naomi's generation than he is to Ruth's generation. However, that plays out. One, uh, because of uh, this you know, endearing little comment here. Uh, two, because uh, Ruth and uh, uh, not Naomi and Boaz are acquaintances, to use verse one's kind of own terminology. Uh, but thirdly, and, and we would point to this as kind of the smoking gun evidence, uh, later on in chapter three, Boaz points out that one of the reasons he believes that Ruth is special, that believes that Ruth is worthy, is precisely because she didn't chase after, quote, young men. In other words, Instead of pursuing a relationship with any of the single men of her own age, Ruth sought out the one that could also provide redemption and wholeness to Naomi. Ruth did not go the pathway everybody expected her to. She chose instead to go after Boaz. And so, while the numbers are far from specific, it does give us just a little bit of a window to play with, right? It tells us that the age gap is enough for people to not have assumed that that was the pathway Ruth was going to walk. But at the same time, it's not so much that everybody around's going, that doesn't work. Whatever that age gap is, you can do the math yourself, right? So even though we have reason to believe that Boaz is very impressed with Ruth, and he may even have had romantic feelings towards her by this point already, what we see here in this very first greeting is more about tender compassion. He calls her my daughter. A man of position... And authority is carefully speaking to a young woman in need. He's in a position to be able to help her, and he lets her know that right out of the gate. My daughter. He says, I've charged my men not to touch you. Stay in my field, work alongside the women that are working for me. Uh, the, the unfortunate but really simple reality is that these harvest fields are not a safe place for a foreign woman. Not at all. As we're reading through this story, we have to continually remind ourselves that we're in the time period of the judges right now. Israel's not exactly righteous. And yeah, Israel's kind of having a better moment currently. They're currently kind of near the top of their bell curve when it comes to uh, kind of national level righteousness. But in the cycle of sin, slavery, repentance, rescue, and repeat, they're never very far from an uh-oh moment. They're having a more put-together couple of years, but doesn't mean that everything is holy and sinless at, the, at this time period. It's still defined by everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And as a foreign woman, without a chaperone, Ruth has stepped into a very, very real risk here. Boaz understands that risk, and so the very first thing on his to-do list is to provide protection for Ruth. I commanded my men, but I can't vouch for what will happen in other fields. So stick close to the ladies that are working for me. In fact, don't even leave the field to go off to the well to get a drink. Use, uh, drink what my guys have drawn for our people. Don't run off. We talked last week 
about how gleaning was a command given by God to his people. It was a a non-negotiable that Israel was to mirror the, the heart of God towards the orphan and the widow and the sojourner. But even in the very first words from Boaz to Ruth, Boaz flies right past what the law actually required from him, explicitly required from him, and into the category of special blessing. He steps immediately past, this is what I'm required to do by the law, and this is how I will love you well. Absolutely none of what he just said was actually required of him by God's command. None. But Boaz is impressed by Ruth. He wants to return the kindness that he's heard the gossip about. But while Boaz kind of believes that he's returning kindness for kindness, that's not how Ruth sees things at all. Ruth does not see it as a return of kindness. Ruth sees his generosity as an extravagant blessing that she doesn't deserve. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have you found favor, or why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? So Ruth walked into that field that morning hoping that she could find somebody, just anybody who would say yes, who would be kind enough to allow her to gather some food from the scraps that they left behind. That was her greatest hope that morning. And so in her mind, just being given a yes was a kindness that she didn't presume. Just just getting that yes was going to be enough. And so for the landowner himself, forget about the manager, for the landowner himself to come speak to her about it and to speak tenderly to her about it, and then even on top of that to provide protection for her as she does so blows her away. And so we're told that she hits her face. She falls down on her face, prostrate as a sign of unrestrained gratitude. What, what Boaz sees as a kindness being returned, Ruth sees as favor, as undeserved grace. And like you and I probably would in that moment, at least I know for me, she, she can't wrap her head around why. Why, why. why would you show this kindness to me? You know who I am. Why would you show this kindness to me? Look at Boaz's response in verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So Boaz appears to be just as blown away by Ruth's actions as Ruth is blown away by his. It's like, how could I not show you this kindness? I've heard about everything you've done for Naomi. Like, I'm, like, I'm aware of the story. I've heard the rumors. You've lost so much. And, and what you didn't lose, you willingly left behind. May the Lord repay every bit of it, he says. And we pointed out a couple of times now throughout the series, but Lord, in capital letters, there's a little shorthand that Bible translators often use uh, to replace the covenant name of God to Israel. And so the covenant name that God gave to his people to know him by, to call him by. And so it was an incredibly valuable name. They were very careful not to overstep uh, how they used it and use it in a way that dishonored the Lord. And so oftentimes uh, it's, it's, it's replaced in English Bibles with the Lord. 
And so Boaz just, just described, he didn't just describe some kind of generic title of God to, to, you know, to hope in the universe would work some things out. You know, the way that people often talk about uh, kind of fate or, or, or karma or those kinds of things. No, he's talking about the personal and knowable God of Israel, Yahweh. The one with a capital O who's actively working throughout history for his glorious purposes and for the good of his people. Speaking of the Lord, he says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a pretty way of putting it. Boaz understands what it means for Ruth to leave her people in Moab and cling to Naomi and cling to Israel. It means that she's also clinging to their God as well. She's going to have salvation from the storm. She's going to be protected. It will come under his wings. Ruth didn't just leave behind her family and her culture. She sought refuge in the loving care of Yahweh. And so not, not only does Boaz publicly request God to provide for her in exactly those ways, but he it appears that he also steps up in ways that he is able to be an instrument of all that reward that he wants God to give her. Right? He's already working on it. He sees his role as being a part of the way that God is going to bless her. And just like before, Ruth returns served by showing gratitude once again, right? She's not like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I had it coming. <laughs> you call it kindness? No, I, I call it favor. I call it favor. You've been more kind to me than I actually deserve. But Boaz is just getting warmed up. Because look what happens next in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. All right, so everybody goes off to work, right? All right and, and however long later, it's time for a lunch break, right? That's kind of how the day's rolling out. Everybody's working. It's time to shut it down and eat lunch together. And Boaz and Boaz's crew were told that they all eat together, which, as far as I can study, seems like a unique thing, all right? It's also a really good boss move. All right? There's a reason why every time we have a work day here at the church, we feed you lunch. All right? It's kind of how that works. We try to be as smart as Boaz. It encourages everybody. It builds fellowship among the team. Yada, yada, yada. It's a good move. Do it. All right? So uh, remember, though, that in this culture, sharing a meal with someone is a lot bigger deal than doing it today. Why would it have been unique? Because Boaz eats with his crew. That's unique. But even beyond that, inviting the Moab girl, the foreign girl who's out there running behind your crew, inviting her to come sit at the table and eat with you, that's a bigger deal. Boaz goes against the natural postures of his culture and he pulls Ruth into the inner circle. He invites her to belong at a level that would have seemed kind of crazy and outlandish to everybody else sitting at the table. Oh, you got some bread? Great, great, great. Dip it in the wine. It's good stuff. Have you tried the roasted grain yet? We're kind of proud of it around here. Have some. Here's a bowl of it. Have your fill. We're told that Ruth eats and eats and even gets to pack a doggy bag to take home. Maybe she remembered it like I always do when I pack a doggy bag at a restaurant. 
You're no better than me. Stop it. All right. Now, but blessing and kindness is starting to add up here, right? It's starting to, starting to build. One commentator I, I looked at this week pointed out that, that because of the extravagant kindness of Boaz, Ruth seems to be becoming the opposite of Naomi. Right? Think about that for a second. Naomi walked into Bethlehem claiming that she went away full and now she's coming back empty and God is at fault, right? God had robbed her of all of her fullness. But Ruth goes out to glean and she went empty, but now she's coming back really, really full, right? While Naomi claims that God caused her to leave full, Ruth now has more than she left with. But she's going to end up being way fuller than she could possibly imagine because look what happens next in verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles uh, for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. All right, so the lunch break is over. It's time for everybody to go back to work. And as everybody's beginning to scatter off into the field, Boaz pulls his boys aside. All right, listen, guys. All right, here's what we're going to do. Let her, don't like make her follow behind you anymore. Let her get right up in the middle of what's going on. And, and gleaners, they're allowed to pick up whatever we, we leave behind. So here's what I want you to do. Pull some out on purpose and leave it behind. Boaz sets the ball on the tee and he lets Ruth crush it. This is an astonishing level of generosity here. This is how Boaz earns his keep. This is how Boaz provides for his own family and he's yanking it out of the profit margin. She can have it. Let her have it. In fact, make it easy for her to have it. There's absolutely nothing, zero percent, absolutely nothing in the law that will require any of this from Boaz. So obvious questions arise, right? Like why, why, why is he doing this? What has gotten into old Boaz? Is he trying to repay the kindness at a level that he thinks Ruth has already shown? Is he trying to measure up? And try to, you know, balance the scales here? Is it, is it some pious attempt on uh, Boaz to go beyond the law so he looks good to God? Is that, is that what's going on here? All right, uh, no idea. We can argue amongst ourselves. Right. <laughs> is, it, is it special affection? There's a little bit of flirtation buried in it. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever is going on, though, what we need to see here is that Boaz is consciously and intentionally stepping up as the fulfillment of every material thing that he just asked God to bless Ruth with. Every material thing. Okay, well, what about all the non-material she lost? Patience, grasshopper, it's coming. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? All right, let's call time out there. All right, so Ruth works all day long, we're told, right alongside everybody else. She just rakes it in. All right, she's just, she's just doing well. She shuts down cleaning at sundown like everybody else, and she immediately sets to work beating out uh, the, barley, uh, the barley grain. Uh, you don't want to carry around all the stalks. You just want the stuff you can eat. So she, they beat it real quick, and you know, that's, you know, what you can eat falls out of there. All right, and so we're told that when all's said and done, Ruth has gathered an ephah of barley, which is a fun word, right? So what in the world is an ephah? Well, it depends on who you ask, actually. 
There's a little bit of debate. Some, the conservative estimates, argue that it's three-fifths of a bushel. You're welcome. Others argue that it's as much as a full bushel. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's really hard to visualize still. Don't worry, I got you covered. Here's 40 pounds of barley, guys. By the way, I had to clean out three grocery stores to get this. <laughs> if you go to Hannaford later looking for barley, I'm the jerk who robbed the, all the barley. All right. I, I hope you understand. That's a lot of barley. It's a lot of barley. In fact, it's likely a month's worth of food for Ruth and Naomi. That's a lot of barley. Ruth gleaned about the same amount of barley that all the paid employees would have gathered that day. And I highly, highly doubt, just speculation on my part, but I highly doubt that industrious young Ruth is just going to sit there and stare at the pile of barley. This isn't just enough to eat. This is enough to sell. It's enough to sell. Ruth gets home with a crazy amount of grain, and (laughs) because she remembered a doggy bag full of today's lunch that she didn't go there with, And Naomi doesn't know how to process it. She she has no idea. Where'd you go today? Whose field did you glean in? Now, before we get to Ruth's answer, and we will, there's a question that I think we need to ask out loud. Where was Naomi during the time that Ruth was working? Where was she at? Naomi is older, but she's not too old to get out there and work alongside Ruth, yes, the work would have been hard. Naomi obviously would have been slower than Ruth at the practice, but if the choice is eat or don't eat, I think Naomi probably could have been helpful, right? I think she probably could have had something to offer here, but so we have to make some assumptions reading between the lines, but, but it appears that Naomi didn't go with Ruth because she didn't think that Ruth was going to be very successful. That it wasn't worth her time. So she's chose instead to, what appears to be moping around the house all day. Before Ruth walks back in the door in verse 18, we've got exactly two things that Naomi has said since walking back into Bethlehem. Uh, the beginning of chapter 2, where, where she gives Ruth permission to go and glean without going herself, and then the end of chapter 1, where she accuses God of bringing calamity upon her. Uh, Naomi's not exactly in a go-and-do-what-she-can kind of place right now. That's not, her, that's not her world at the moment. She allows Ruth to go, but it doesn't appear that it's optimistically. She just kind of lets her do. In fact, Naomi doesn't even seem to show the same level of concern that Boaz did for Ruth's protection when she sends Ruth out. See, not, not only did... Not only did Naomi probably not think Ruth would come back with any food, she, she might not have cared if Ruth came back at all. Naomi's in a dark place. Naomi's been by herself all day long with nothing but her misery to keep her company. How you do in those moments? Does it get better by the end of the day or you just compound it? 
Naomi's been compounding the problem. But then Ruth finally walks back in the door, and Naomi's world turns upside down. Right? Did you see that change? Where did you go? (laughs) Who's field did you go into? It, it appears, it appears that the extravagant favor of Boaz is beginning not to, to, to just affect Ruth, it's beginning to affect Naomi as well. Look at verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. All right, so. We talked last week about how Ruth in, how just happened to end up in Boaz's portion of the field, that it wasn't some uh, kind of scheme, some kind of angle that, that Ruth and Naomi were working, trying to manipulate before she went out there. And, and this is further proof of that, right? Naomi had no idea where Ruth worked for the day, and Ruth has no idea who Boaz is before this conversation. And she doesn't know. But, but even more so, we also see proof here that God is sovereignly working over the whole affair. That none of this is outside of his, his control. You can just imagine kind of Naomi's face lighting up as she hears Boaz's name said out loud. Boaz, you say. Oh, Ruth, I know Boaz. He's a nice man. She says he's a close relative of ours. And is one of our redeemers. So what's a redeemer? Well, it's the third Jewish custom that bears significant weight on the story of Ruth. We already talked about gleaning. We talked about leverage marriage. Redeemers were a third protective piece built into the culture. Some people uh, like to call them kinsmen redeemers. That's the term they use. Uh, the problem is that that term is incredibly redundant. All right? Redeemers act as redeemers for their family. And so if you're not a part of the family, you're not a redeemer. That's how that works. You have to be a kinsman. So it's just a redundant thing. All right. So redeemers were men identified within an extended family who could step in with either financial or legal help when the family got in trouble. Uh, that's what's going on. Uh, pr- they would protect and preserve the resources of the family. For instance, uh, the redeemers could buy back land that had been sold off to cover a debt. They would buy it back so that that land would stay inside the family. Right? Uh, in Leviticus uh, 25, God singles out uh, redeemers as being able to buy someone out of slavery and set them free. In, in Numbers 35, the closest redeemer was the one responsible for pursuing and avenging the murder of a loved one. All right? that, so the redeemers have all this stuff going on. And so there's a lot going on here. Essentially, they, they were well-off members of the family who could stand tall and be a means of rescue for the family when the family got into trouble. That's who the redeemers are. When the family had a problem, the redeemer stepped in to fix the problem. There was also a proximity requirement to them. Naomi's uh, nearest relationship had first rights in each of these circumstances. And Naomi hints at that reality at the end of verse 20, she, she doesn't say that Boaz is our redeemer. She says that Boaz is one of our redeemers. So follow the logic here. It appears, it appears that there are multiple men, multiple pathways of redemption available to these women already baked into the culture before they step foot into Bethlehem. The pieces were already in place before Naomi and Ruth even showed up. And what's really interesting to me is that Naomi knows this. She knows this. This isn't new information to Naomi. Ruth didn't come home with a note explaining who Boaz was and how he could help. 
pinned to her, her shirt, right? Naomi knows Boaz. She knows who he is. And she knows that Boaz is one of multiple men in her family who are specifically set apart to help in their exact problem. So putting the pieces together here, it seems like Ruth walking in the door, bearing the gifts of Boaz's favor, bearing the fruits of his grace, it seems to have actually woken Naomi up out of her fog. She does a complete 180. She goes from sitting at the house all by herself while, while Ruth goes out and works for them, tries to get food for them. She goes all the way from that to how great is our God that he would provide so extravagantly for us. He has not left us without hope. And he has not done writing our story. Just a little bit of shift in Naomi, right? How long do you think it's been since Ruth's seen her mother-in-law like that? Think it's been a little bit? Sitting up tall with hope in her eyes? My guess is that the bitter one, Mara, my guess is that it's not a fitting name for Naomi anymore. Church family, showing favor in a favorless world, it changes people. It changes people. To, to be more gracious and open-handed than you have to be in a given situation, it stands out like a sore thumb that doesn't, in a world that doesn't do grace very well, right? Have you noticed that about our world? We don't even do forgiveness and moving on very well. Undeserved blessing is completely alien. And while it may be greatly exacerbated in our current cultural moment, it wasn't exactly celebrated in the time period of the judges either. Naomi and Ruth have multiple times now throughout these handful of verses uh, assumed that people would treat them uh, exactly the opposite of the way that Boaz eventually treats them. They didn't see it coming. Follower of Jesus, you will have opportunities. Not, not you might. You will have opportunities in your life where you are in a unique position to be gracious when no one else cares to be gracious. You will have opportunities to be open-handed and to bless uh, when the exact opposite postures are expected by everyone else in the room. And how you steward that opportunity matters for more than just your momentary obedience or disobedience. It affects those around you. One, God will use that graciousness where graciousness is not deserved. He will use it to change the realities of the ones on the receiving end of that grace. Like He'll use it to pull them out of pain and to pull them out of darkness and, and maybe even hopefully pull them out of their own arrogance and self-righteousness. But two, God will also use it to show off how attractive his otherworldly grace is to everybody on the sidelines. Showing favor in a favorless world stands out so much that it even changes the people in the audience who are watching it play out. It wakes Naomi up. Where'd you go today? Okay, okay. Like, what's our motivation? Like, it sounds good, but why should I bother? Why should any of this concern us? Because of the gospel. That's why. Because we have already been shown an otherworldly and extravagant grace. While, while Ruth and Boaz go back and forth over whether or not Ruth deserves this kind of kindness uh, because of the kindness she's already shown, uh, the, the, the problem with trying to attach ourselves to the story of Ruth and Boaz is that we're not like Ruth. 
Ruth came to the table with this extravagant uh, dedication, this act of service and, and emptying love that Boaz goes, man, I want to know more about that. Let's reward it. The problem is, I don't have that in me. How about you? When we come to Jesus, we bring no previously righteous actions to the table for him to be impressed with. Not only is Jesus the greater and more perfect Ruth, but <laughs> good news for us, Jesus is the greater and more perfect Boaz, too. That's one of the reasons I love this story. There's, no, there's not just one Jesus figure. Jesus plays both roles on our behalf, continuing to bless and continuing to provide and continuing uh, to uh, press in and, and give, even despite our never having earned a bit of it. That's my hope today. My sincere hope that you see that otherworldly extravagant favor for exactly what it is, and because of seeing it, it has absolutely turned your world upside down. If you're hearing this this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, let, let, we can do something about that. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. The, the Bible teaches that we have all fallen short of God's glory, that, that we are all by default separated relationally from God because of our sin, and that we are owed the just and righteous punishment for sin. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that, that sin was accounted for. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute in our place to make payment for our sin. And he was raised again as a vindication of his sufficient work on our behalf. And now he calls on you to respond to him in his extravagant favor by repenting of your sin and calling on him as Savior and Lord. The greater and more perfect Boaz is our great Redeemer. And you can meet him this morning, call on him this morning. In a little bit, I'm going to give some time of response. That's your opportunity. But what about the rest of us? What about those of us who are already followers of Jesus, already Christians? we, well, we got a couple more verses to look at, all right? Verse 21, Naomi is perked up. We've learned that Boaz is a Redeemer. Now Ruth answers, right? Let's look at it. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Verse 22, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, so Ruth tells us, uh, Ruth tells Naomi about the physical protection Boaz gave to her. Naomi thinks it was a good idea. Right, yeah, that sounds like a wise thing. We should probably continue doing exactly that. Uh, but then we get some insight into the timeline that flowed after this moment. All right, Ruth didn't just go to work in the field for one day and get an ephah of barley. No, she kept going back out there day after day after day, after day, after day, until the end of the barley harvest, and then until the end of the wheat harvest. We're talking about a month's worth of harvesting here. So you put the two of them together, Ruth's put in a lot of work. If she's come anywhere at all close to this rate of success, we're talking about roughly two and a half years worth of food that she gathered in a month. So why is that important for us? I mean, cool little stat, I guess. Was that important for us? Because Boaz's favor wasn't just a one-time thing. That's why. His extravagant favor was coupled to the promise of future blessing as well. And as the greater and more perfect Boaz, Jesus's extravagant blessing has future promise buried in it too. Not only 
is his work on our behalf, something that has, uh, that has been poured out for us in full, but he has promised to continue blessing his people until the day that he sets all things right. And in his goodness, he has given us a picture of that past blessing as a reminder of not only what he has already done, but what he is still doing and will one day bring to final completion. Extravagant grace coupled with promised provision. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we've been given a picture of what he has already done and is still doing. We get to lean on that picture this morning to remind us. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this table is for you. It's a way we can all respond this morning. Uh, For those of our deacons who are supposed to be coming up to serve, could you come up at this moment, please? Uh, we're going to do it a little differently than we, what we've done the last couple of times. We like to mix it up around here just, you know, just to make you mad at me. All right. um, but uh, in a second, I'm going I'm to call everybody to, who's going to come and to eventually stand, and we'll come out down this aisle here, pass through. You'll grab the elements. You'll take them right here. Uh, if you brought a benevolence offering, you can put it in the plate. If you want to drop your cup off, that way we don't have to go searching for it later. You can put it in the basket, whatever you want to do. Right. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and we'd ask you to, you to abstain. Not because there's something magical about this, this stuff. It's crackers and juice. Um, but for those of us who are Christians, this is a picture of something big and true and eternal. It's special for us in a way that you just don't understand yet. It's a family meal. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he gathered his crew into a big room in order to celebrate the Passover. Another Jewish custom that not only pointed backwards to something that God had done, but forwards as well to something that God had promised to do. It also pointed to to eternal things rather than just past things. And so Jesus shows up as the greater and more perfect sacrificial lamb. He, He gets to cover all the bases for us. I like that about him. Jesus picks up the bread and he tears it and says, this is my body which is broken for you. He meant that figuratively in the moment, but what was coming was literal. His body would eventually be broken, torn, ripped to shreds in some moments. There's a price for our sin. Jesus owned it. He picked up a cup of wine and says, this is the, the covenant, the new covenant of blood which is poured out for you. Again, the price of sin was serious. It's death, we're told. Jesus owned that, owned that payment for you. Church family, take a moment and think seriously on your desperate need for Jesus' extravagant favor. Extravagant favor. Your sin is great, but his grace is greater still. Or maybe his mercy is more, I don't know. (laughs) You may plan that. (laughs) Take that moment, and then when you're ready, come forward and have the elements. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for sending your son to not only be a better and more perfect Ruth, but a better and more perfect Boaz. There are times I wish I had something to offer. 
like Ruth did. Truth is, I probably mess it up somehow. Thank you for not needing me to have something to offer. Thank you for sending your son to be everything I could not accomplish on my own. Thank you for this picture so that we can remember that you are the, the one who has earned and the one who has been gracious. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.